Thank you all again for singing with us this morning. Thank you uh, for being with us. I hope you have a Bible. If you do, we're going to look at Matthew 13. We spent a few weeks ago, uh, a few weeks ago, we spent a while looking at one of the parables in Matthew 13. There was a few more that I felt like God was bringing us uh, to and wanted us to study. Uh, We're going to look at two this morning, very short, just uh, three verses that we're going to read. This is really going to set the table for a pretty uh, incredible conversation uh, that we're going to have today that I think is so important for, for the Christian to hear, for every believer to hear, uh, not because of what God demands from us, but because of what God is offering us. And I hope that we hear his word and respond to him with that sincerity uh, that uh, we, we ought to today. So Matthew 13, verse 44, Jesus says, Again, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and hid, and for joy... Over it he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking beautiful pearls, who when he found one pearl, one pearl of great price, he went and sold all that he had and bought that one pearl. Again, we're going to have a pretty incredible conversation today, but first, I need to talk through some stuff with y'all. Um, I don't know, sometimes it's good for me to get some stuff off my chest. I developed this weird habit when I was a kid. Um, I don't know if I learned it or it just was native to me. Um, maybe it's something everybody dealt with as a child. Um, there are some pretty weird things that I do and some pretty weird things that I think. I used to tell myself, oh, don't feel self-conscious about that, Justin. Everybody deals with that, or everybody does that, or everybody thinks that. And then I realized at some point that literally nobody does that besides me. So if this is one of those things, then just bear with me and forgive me. And hopefully it's in my past, but I don't know. Um, But anyways, when I was a kid, I I used to do this uh, pitiful slash awful thing slash spoiled brat kind of thing. I don't know, one of the the three uh, things when I was in stores. um, Obviously, it was around certain aisles where they sold things that uh, I just had to have. Um, If I saw something I wanted, and this rarely happened, but every once in a while it did. When I saw something that I wanted, um, I had had a plan. I had a three... To platform plan, and I would always begin with the very simple, you know, very, you know, honorable thing of just asking for it. Now, that usually works, right? That's the nice thing to do. That's the right thing to do, and usually if you're told no, then you just move on with your life, but not for children and not for some adults. But I would ask for it, and let's be honest, it usually worked, you know, and, and I got to be honest, you know, I mean, if, if you look at this face, I mean, would you say no to him? <laughs> now, it's Caroline, um, is, uh, I'm sure you couldn't say no to her face either. But, I mean, could you say no to that? I mean, that face got me places and, and got me a lot of things that I probably, maybe got me here, I don't know. Uh, but that face um, was, it, it took me places until I was into my 20s. Um, and now I have to say that as in it's in the past, God help me. Um, but I had this existential moment, this crisis, the, a while back when I was at the dentist, when I realized I didn't have that face anymore because my, my dental hygienist who'd been cleaning my teeth since I was 18, um, she said, well, you finally don't look like a child anymore. You know, and I thought, well, when did it happen? You know, like... And it just crushed me, you know, and I guess being 30, I had to figure it was coming at some point. Um, but if it got me until I was 29, then I guess that was a, a good thing. Because um, she always would tell me how young I looked, and that was that's that really hurtful thing to say to somebody, you know. 
I mean, you don't tell somebody how young they look for five for, for a long time, for 10 years, and then say, well, you look old now. Um, but, um, you know, God bless her. She's a good Christian lady. Um, but uh, she won't ever hear this. But <laughs> that phase, it got me um, most of what I could ever ask for. But sometimes, sometimes, uh, if for whatever reason uh, I was told no, which it rarely happened, but if it ever happened, I had to resort to plan B, which was beg for it. And now y'all have seen the kids begging for things in stores. I was never that kid, you know, that embarrassment to society. No, God bless, I shouldn't say that about children. Um, but I've, I've never been that child, you know, screaming and stomping and begging. At least if I, if I was, I don't remember it, and I've chosen to forget it. But I, I, I begged for a few things, and I know it's a bad look, but sometimes you just got to do what's necessary. I'm not proud of it, but, you know, that, that happened. But if asking didn't work and if begging didn't work, I had a plan C. And this is really awful, and i, I got to be honest about it. It's really, I feel terrible, but I had to do it. Plan C was hide it. Hide it in the store. As in, if I don't get it, nobody gets it. And hopefully, when I go back, I can get it, because I know where I hid it. And the store workers, you know, and I know you're a prompt uh, employee, and uh, Max, if he's watching, if you ever watch retail, I know y'all really do a lot to make sure that the aisles are cleaned up and tidied up. But sometimes you could hide things behind certain things. You'd find that one aisle, that one rack of things that nobody ever wanted. You'd hide it behind that because then nobody would ever think to look there. I was really good at this, um, and, and, and I know it's bad, but, you know, do as I say, not as I did. But, um, you know, uh, if you're listening, kids, uh, don't take my advice. But since I was a kid, there were some things that I just had to do. Now, here's the thing about um, when I was a kid, and maybe still, but especially when I was a child, I was into some things that were always hard to get. Um, I was a collector of sorts. I didn't realize I was a collector, but I was a collector, and then I became one, and I just stayed one. But um, I told Lindsay this, that she started buying me these little collectible things. That I told her that the rule is, if you get one, um, you'll get three, and if you ever get three, you'll get 30. Um, so don't ever buy me three of something because I have to have 30 of them. And then once I get 30 of them, then you have a room full. Um, that's why we have a room in the house that's just dedicated to 30s of things. Um, but if, if, when I was a kid, I was into things that was hard, were hard to get, that were rare. And, you know, I didn't realize it, but over time you realize, you know, this one says one of, hundred, one of 100 or one of 1,000 or whatever. So back in 1999, um, you know, uh, it was uh, really hard to find this new special uh, series of Star Wars figures because that was a thing back then. Um, still is, of course. Um, but there was a special edition uh, Darth Vader Kenner figure. Um, y'all know what I'm talking about if you've been there. And there, that you couldn't find it. And I, and I hunted everywhere. I mean, you stopped at every CVS and, and Eckerd's between here and Myrtle Beach trying to find it. And, and I found, finally, finally found it. Um, but, you know, if I ever found something like that and I, I, I wasn't able to buy it or I wasn't able to get it, I had to hide it because somebody would get it if I didn't. And that wasn't okay. That wasn't fair. Um, so I, if I found a rare or uncommon figure in a store and I couldn't get it right away, I had to figure out a way to stave off anybody else getting their grubby hands on it so I could try again next time. And thankfully, you know, if mom said no, then dad might say yes. And if dad says no, then my grandparents may take me the next time. So there was always backup plans to the backup plans. So, so the hiding thing um, was kind of like a layaway. It wasn't really unethical. I mean, I wasn't stealing it. I was just hiding it. And I was going to buy it sooner than later. The store would get its money eventually. Um, and, and that worked a lot. I would hide things and, and, you know, I would go back and find them and, hey, here it is. Um, but if, if your child, if you're a child, uh, God bless you if you are, if you're listening to this, if you're watching this with your parent, if you're hearing this to, to my nieces and nephews, let me say clearly, don't do this. Because some other child might cry if they knew that you kept them from getting what they wanted. 
okay? Um, and if your parents say no and someone else buys it, it's probably God's way of saying you didn't need it. Probably, maybe not, I don't know. But clearly, I learned my lesson uh, because uh, as I've gotten older, I realized the error of my ways, uh, how wrong it was to hide things until I was able to come back and get it. And I definitely don't still do it. But there was this one time that I relapsed. And I was much older, but not still, still young enough to be considered a child. I was in college. Um, I was like less than 20. Um, I was in college, uh, maybe 21, 20, I don't remember, but I was... And the mall in Charlotte, um, I had went to do something down there. I don't know. Maybe it was a day off. But I was in the mall in Charlotte, and I had, I was into this brand. Um, Will got me into this brand of shirts that uh, y'all see me in them, slim, fit, well on the pocket. Um, and uh, they were hard to find smalls in, adult smalls. And I was too prideful to wear a medium. Um, so it was hard to find adult smalls. And I guess I hadn't discovered their website yet, because I, I don't know. I was still didn't have a credit card. Um, so I don't know. I can't really explain my behavior, but I was in the mall, and I was just, you know, just thinking about this gives me PTSD to this experience. So I got to get through this. But I was in this department store, probably Belk, and um, I, I find my size in the one shirt that I really wanted. It was the only style they had that I liked, and it was the only size they had of mine. So for whatever reason, you know, I, I don't really know why. Um, I, I don't know why I did this, but I didn't want to buy it yet. Maybe I didn't want to carry a bag around. I'm really weird. I didn't want to carry a bag around. Um, I just didn't. I don't know. I didn't want to carry a bag around. Or maybe I just didn't, want to, didn't know if I wanted to spend $40 on a t-shirt, which, was not ever, which is never a good idea. But I thought, you know, maybe I don't want to spend that. I'll buy it. I'll spend it somewhere else in the mall. But I'm carrying this shirt around Belk, and, and I didn't know if I wanted to buy it yet, but I also didn't want the only one to fit me to fall into somebody else's hands. So, you know, flashback. Um, and my friend Brandon is with me, um, and I'm sure he's using a much more wholesome sermon illustration than I am this morning. So God bless him up in Pennsylvania. Um, but the only way the, depart- the way the department store is laid out, you know, there's a sections for each brand. You know, there's the polo, and then there's the whatever. So um, I uh, walked from the section to section, and, 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 you know, God bless the ladies that work at Belk, but the day shift ladies are very hawkish over their uh, products. So if you walk out of their section and didn't buy it, they get... I guess a little bit worried that you're not going to bring it back. So I uh, brought, walked out of this section to the jeans section, Nautica or something, and I think, you know what, I'm going to hide this shirt under a stack of jeans because I, nobody will go there and look for it, and I know where I hid it, so I'll just go back and get it later, and everything will be fine. So, you know, and again, I didn't realize I was in a place where that wasn't, you know, kosher. I don't know. So I hid the shirt under a stack of Nautica jeans, and, and shifty-looking me, you know, I kind of make, sure I'm nobody's watching. I'm kind of looking around. I'm holding the jeans up and Brandon's looking at me like, what is wrong with you? So I'm like shoving it into the back of the shelf and I'm hiding jeans on top of it. And clearly I don't think that looks suspicious, but you know, I mean, I guess people were worried. Um, So afterwards, Brandon and I were entering the mall, the bigger section of the mall. And then these two very large bouncer types approach us. And they flank us on both sides. And this might, I might embellish this a little bit, but I'm pretty sure this is accurate. They come, these guys are big. I mean, you know, they're, they're muscular. They're big guys. And they come on us on both sides. And Brandon's a big guy, and I'm me, you know. So these guys come on us, and they're on both sides of it. And they've got walkie-talkies, and they're saying, we found the perpetrators or whatever, you know. And I hear something about a stolen item over the radio. And I'm thinking, what in God's name is going on? Like, I didn't steal anything. Brandon didn't steal anything. And, and I might be misremembering, but at some point in the story, we put, they put socks over our heads, and then they put their arms under our sh- arms. 
and they, that didn't happen. But they drag us, they literally drag us into the mall, into the, the belt, and then they take us down this really narrow uh, escalator to the basement of the department store. Never knew this was actually there. They take us into the basement, into this like, well, this really dark room with a hundred TVs on every, on, on all the walls, and they sit us in this little corner in these two like really rickety looking chairs. And Brandon won't look at me, and, and I'm just like, I don't know what's going on. This has got to be some joke. Um, so my heart's racing, and we're in this dimly lit room, room, and there's all these security cameras and these feeds and this small desk, this old-school lamp on it, and, and we're told to sit in these chairs. And about 20 minutes goes by. And I kept thinking, Brandon, we need to leave. Like, they, they're not the police. They can't keep us here. So he wouldn't leave because he was really worried about, he was about to go to Lutheran Seminary and worried about his record and everything. And I'm thinking, I don't have, I mean, whatever, let's just get out of here. So the woman, the manager, the lady uh, uh, who manages the store comes in and starts asking us all these weird questions about this item we allegedly stole. And then she refers to my shifty, suspicious walking behavior. And I'm thinking, you know, I don't, what are you talking about? But apparently I walk fast in stores, I don't know. So I'm thinking, ma'am, both of us have on Star Wars shirts and cargo shorts. Where did we hide an item? I mean, if we stole something, where is it? So then it dawns on me, the radio transmission was about a shirt that they think I stole. And I'm thinking, oh, this is a misunderstanding. There's a shirt hidden under a stack of jeans in the section across from where I picked it up. And she kind of says, excuse me, walks out of the room, and she's on the walkie-talkie or whatever, and she comes back in and says, we found the shirt. Like, of course you did. I hid it there. She asked me, why did you hide it? I'm like, well, do I have to tell you? I mean, is this plead the fifth? I don't know. I hid it because I intended on buying it. Not now. So Brandon, hands his, he's got his hands in his face, and I'm just thinking, this is silly. Yeah, I'm kind of laughing. One day I'm going to tell this story. And I stand up thinking, well, I guess we'll just see ourselves out. Then the manager says, can y'all sit back down a minute? I'm thinking, what is wrong? Can we just leave? I didn't steal anything. So the manager says, can we get some information from you? I'm like, are you going to send us a gift card for our time? You know, I probably said that. No, I, she's like, I just need to get some information. I guess she was thinking we were cooking up some larger scale crime, you know, trying to plan something big. So she wanted to get our information. And I was like, I'm, I'm pulling, you know, Brandon's pulling out his social security card and his driver's license something and put that stuff up. I mean, you don't want, they don't, owe, you don't owe them anything. So um, I, uh, I don't know if I did this to be funny or witty or just ironically, but I had this card made when I was in college that just had my name and my number on it with a Bible verse just in case I got opportunities to preach. Because <laughs> I really, you know, I was like, I don't know. What do you do? People say, can I have your name and number? So I give them a card, and it just said, you just care ministries or something on it with a Bible verse. So I'm thinking, I hand her this card. And she looks at it, and she says, oh, you're a minister. I was like, well, not anymore. <laughs> I said, no, I intend to be, unless y'all are going to put this on my permanent record. And she says, oh, we are very sorry. We are so sorry. And then Brandon starts telling her about how he's, in co he's going to seminary and all this stuff. I'm like, well, she doesn't care. She has no respect for you. So the, the moral of the story is that is the last time I ever hid something in a store. The end. I didn't buy it. We got back up. We got back out of the jail. And, and Brandon's like, are you going to buy the shirt? I'm like, no, I'm not going to buy the shirt. He's like, what are you going to do? I was like, we need to leave. And we need to get away from this place and never go back. Um, <laughs> But how could I ever go back to a store after that? Now, maybe your stories aren't as extreme or borderline sociopathic as mine, um, but I'm sure, that was a long time ago, so I've grown a lot, uh, but I'm sure you've had a moment or two in your past when you saw something and you thought, I've got to have that. Haven't you? 
Maybe you, you met somebody and you thought, wow, I, I need to know them, I need to get to know them, you know, ask them out or whatever. But you've had a moment where you saw something. Maybe it was a new car, you were dealing with cars, you were thinking about a car, you saw you had to have it. Maybe it was, you know, now we have apps on our phone for every store in the, in, in, in the creation, right? And you can just, I'm not, every app on my phone has got a cart that's full of stuff. I haven't bought it yet. I guess I've hidden it in the app. These habits haven't left me, have they? Um, but we all kind of see things and we think we need those things. It doesn't have to be an item in a store. It can just be anything that consumes you. And that's really consumerism 101. Things consume you. And there's a word for this. If you go to marketing, they teach you this. To marketing school, they teach you this to try to help you brainwash people. The word is focalism. Focalism is the idea that our minds focus on one thing, and then it blurs out everything. That when we get this one thing on our mind, our minds just blur the rest out. It's kind of like when you zoom on a camera, and the rest of it, you know, portrait mode, the rest of it is blurry, and the center of the lens, the center of the focus, is that clear thing that you focused on. See, it works with impact bias. It causes us to zoom in and magnify on one thing above everything else. Now, maybe you've been there before. Maybe it isn't just one thing for you, but it's a hundred things. But it's still, you zoom in on those things. You magnify those things. You focus on those things. And not just when we're around it, but you just can't seem to quit thinking about it. But the idea is that you want something so bad you would consider going to extreme measures to make sure you get it. Have you been there? You want it so bad, you start thinking, what do I got to do? Who do I got to ask? What do I got to buy? What do I need to sell? So I can get that one thing. And maybe you don't just do it for yourself. Maybe it's for somebody that you love, for someone that you, uh, you know, for your spouse, for a child. I don't know. It's not always selfish. But we do these things and we start thinking, what do I got to do? You know, the reason I tell this story, I forgot at this point, but if there's one thing I've learned in my 30 years on this planet, in my own life and through observation, and I don't really watch people, so don't think I'm that kind of person, but I do observe, I think I have to, it's that the story of humanity is one of an incredible longing. Every single heart has this desire for, for fulfillment, for purpose, for peace, this has been one of the greatest things I've learned, something that has steered me in ministry. And here's something that might help you understand why I, why I preach the way I do and what, I, what drives me in ministry. Because in ministry, often, I, mean, I think every preacher probably starts out assuming that everybody just wants to know more. Everybody's on a quest for truth. I think a lot of people think that. A lot of preachers assume that everybody comes to church because they just want to know more truth. We assume that everybody comes into buildings like this just because they want to know more and go deeper and go wiser and go broader. But I learned a long time ago, not to offend any one of you who are hungry for truth. God bless you. I'm there with you. But most people, that's not the case for them. In reality, there is a greater longing that brings us here and that drives us in all of life. We are on a quest for happiness, a quest for fulfillment, a quest for peace. If truth aids us in that quest, then we'll welcome it, but not necessarily we're looking for it. We are looking for happiness, for fulfillment, for peace. Nothing wrong with that. That's just the reality. Every person is looking for happiness, fulfillment, peace, joy, purpose. We all know that because we all look for it. But within us is a longing that is incredible, but even more specifically, it is inescapable. That we can't get away from this. 
It drives every one of us, and, every, and we, we can all be different, different, different personalities and different behavior and different lifestyles, different backgrounds, but we all have this incredible, inescapable longing. And now some of us, I'm there sometimes, we think, I'm content, I've never longed for anything at all, I just care, I'm just happy with what I've got. Now, that's a product of being raised and conditioned in an environment in a country where we have, we have been so blessed and have so much and things have been so controlled, we've just sort of found our bubble and we're able to live out our days in it. So we think we don't need anything or want anything, but we live a lifestyle that's just fed by always having what we have been told or what we actually feel like we need. But if any of these things suddenly are taken away, we realize just how much we long for and desire that sense of place and purpose, satisfaction and fulfillment. In a lot of ways, this is why, this is why we're so nostalgic for our youth. Because of the comfort and stability in the serious matters in life. And even if things weren't okay at home when we were little, we just assumed they were taken care of, they weren't our problems, and we just didn't know any better. Our minds cherish those memories and we often chase the lifestyles we knew as kids because we connect them in those environments with happiness. Every one of us is on a quest for that happiness, to meet this longing. The wisest man that ever lived, King Solomon, who had all the truth known to man, both spiritual, intellectual, and everything in between, he came to this conclusion at the end of his life. All the truth and all the wisdom could not satisfy a greater desire within him. He was so smart, but he still wasn't fulfilled. He spent his days trying to find happiness. He looked everywhere into everyone, but he was unsuccessful and unfulfilled. His longing grew only more and more. At the end of his life, he wrote a memoir called Ecclesiastes, wherein he journaled about his misery he experienced in the world, always coming up empty, always comparing himself, always wa wasting what he had to try to get more. A few verses he penned so much, stand taller than the rest, Really, they serve as a lighthouse for every human heart that is journeying through this life. And I want you to hear these verses that he wrote. What gain has the worker from his toil? I've seen the business that God has given to children of man to be busy with. Solomon says, all of us, we go about our days, we're busy, 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 but we never get what we actually are looking for. We never obtain the thing that actually quenches that thirst. Here's the reason, he says. God has made everything beautiful in its time. He has put eternity into man's heart. That God has put a desire in our hearts that is bigger than this world can satisfy. And that it, Solomon concludes that it's beyond our ability to ever get. But he says God has given us a desire that cannot be met. And because of how broken this world is, we are just stuck on this side of being fulfilled. Now Solomon came to this kind of depressing conclusion. But he had the answer. He had part of it right. God had indeed put this greater desire or this higher capacity in our hearts. He came to a conclusion, though, that nothing could truly satisfy. He considered this longing inconsolable. As in it could not be met and it could not be satisfied. Solomon, the wisest man, maybe the richest man to ever live, at least in his day, he mused that he would give up everything and everyone to obtain true happiness and peace and purpose. But alas, he died before the world ever got a chance for this to be real. A thousand years later, a descendant of Solomon rose up in Israel, who on the surface was a far cry from Solomon's glory. 
Though royalty flowed through his blood, he grew up a peasant in Nazareth who, where he would become a carpenter and spend most of his life looking after his mother. But around age 30, he disappeared into the wilderness and came back into town with this glow about him and this aura about him that was unmistakable. And on the Sabbath day, one spring afternoon, when it was his turn to read the Scriptures at the local synagogue in Nazareth, he stood up and he proclaimed that he was God's Messiah and everyone just looked at him like he was crazy. He, came to, he said, I come to bring something to the hearts of people that cannot be obtained on their own or by themselves. And he opens an Old Testament scripture, and this is what he says about himself. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. Those of you that feel like you just never have enough and you won't find enough and you need more, here's some good news. But not just to those. To give liberty to the captives and recovering to the sight of blind. Those that feel like they're held back and those that are held down. Those that cannot see. Those that are oppressed. Literally, but also in a more metaphorical way. The world has all of us captive and blind and oppressed and poor. We are longing for more, but we cannot get it and we cannot find it. And we would do anything for it. Jesus says, good news. I have come to answer that desire, to meet that longing. And you won't get it away from me. And now this really stirred up the town, as you would imagine, 2,000 years later. We're still talking about him. This took his family by shock, but heaven smiled because it was all part of God's plan. This is why Jesus had come, to answer, to speak to that incredible, inescapable, considered inconsolable longing in every heart. But as people listened to Jesus, he had a little bit of an audacious audacious tendency where he would basically tell people that there was something wrong with them. And he would often demonstrate miracles over sick and afflicted to show them there was a greater problem inside that this world could not help them with. And this offended people. Maybe it offends you, but this is what Jesus said. Jesus said that every soul is unwell. Every soul, the heart of everybody, is empty and broken and lost. As in it's trying to find its way, but it never can find what it needs. He claimed that every soul longs for and lacks what it needs the most, a sense of belonging. Sin, he claimed, had disconnected everybody from God. And only he could reconcile us back to God to give us that belonging, that relationship that we desired. He claimed that we would, and of course we do, look for a belonging in everyone, everywhere, every place, everything, but none of the things of this world can do for us what only he said he could do. None of them could save us, make us well, make us whole. That's what the word saves means. Save us from what? From perishing, from being lost to ourselves and to God, from ever finding true and lasting hope and purpose. But you have to wonder, and you maybe would ask, what did Jesus offer? What did he claim he could give that could save himself? And some walked away disappointed when he didn't give them an item or an object. He said, I'm what you're looking for. People all heard that he offered this fabled eternal life and he, they came and asked him, what do we need to do or what can we, can, how can we find it and possess it? 
And he would utter two simple words over and over again to the poor, the rich, the religious, the wicked. He would say, follow me. If you want it, follow me. Where are we going? I don't know. Because it's not about where we're going. It's about who you're following. And when he said, follow me, he meant, follow me. Sometimes people would say, hey, I can't come with you today. He would practically insult them and say, do you even know you're going to have a tomorrow? And they would look at him like, who are you? They would walk away. When somebody suggested that following him might be inconvenient or uncomfortable or dangerous, he would say, you're making an even more dangerous decision by saying no. On one occasion, a man said, hey, I need to go home and tend to my father who is not well. And Jesus so cruelly and dispassionately said, let the dead bury their dead. You follow me. And people just were in shock and awe. How could you say that? Jesus told a very, very, very rich man who was struggling finding time to follow Jesus that he would do better to be as the poorest of men than to let those things keep him from Jesus. People just shook their head thinking, Jesus, you're a nobody. I mean, you're going to die and nobody's going to remember you and you keep turning these people away. Who, who do you think you are, Jesus? On one occasion, Jesus said something so crazy. Whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Jesus, who do you think you are not worthy of you? I mean, come on. You're just a rabbi. You're just a teacher. You're just a nobody from Nowheresville. Yeah, you say some cool stuff, but you're all talk. What is, gonna, what is following you going to do for us? Who do you think Jesus is? How does that statement make you feel? You know, the world has so many different opinions about Jesus, doesn't it? Christians have, so, Christians have so many different opinions about Jesus, but what if there's just one answer? What if Jesus really is this treasure of extraordinary value? I mean, you might not agree with me, but what if he is? What if upon finding and knowing him, everything else pales and fails to compare to him? You've got to consider this. Church culture has really watered down what it means to be Christian. This is so sad. And I don't mean because we've lowered our standards or whatever people fuss about. We've lowered our expectations as Christians. We've turned Jesus into a ribbon, a ticket, a plaque, in a ceremony. Haven't we? I mean, we've made Jesus into these, things, these little prayers that we pray and these little things that we do, these services that we have. We've bottled Jesus down to being an idol, a lifeless, dead, religious figure that lived and died, and we pay homage to him once or twice a week. And we go back to our worlds, and we go on a quest for happiness because we've underestimated that Jesus can actually give it to us. Yet we've made him such a dead, religious figure, we don't expect that from him. Hello? And we go back to the world. And you know what, Christians? This is why marriages don't last. Christian marriages don't last. Because we look to our spouses for things that they can never give us. This is why even for Christians, we, we move from politician to public figure looking for somebody to leave us and save us. It's why Christians, we rack up debt, we lose sleep, we run around the world looking for treasure, searching for joy, hunting for peace and meaning. 
Because even those who bear His name have forgotten, maybe never really realized who Jesus is and what He offers us. If there's anything I've learned in my 10 years of ministry now, it's that we undersell Jesus so much and so greatly. We beg people to accept Him rather than presenting Him as a king who needs nobody's approval or nobody's acceptance. Rather than presenting Him as a glorious king who left His splendor to save us, we turn Him into something He's not. We forget that Jesus came and revealed our sin and He unmasked our religious efforts to try to make us feel better. He unmasked our worldly struggle to find belonging and we cannot make ourselves better. We cannot find something in this world to make us better. And Jesus exposes that. He came to show us that only in knowing Him can we ever be saved and receive the things we are convinced are locked away in this world. Jesus proved His love for us in that He took a place on the most vile of crosses, suffering the death of sinners and slaves of His day, suffering the most painful of deaths you could imagine. He showed us the end of this world, a broken place of judgment and emptiness and darkness. He wasn't left for dead, though, like any normal man would have been. He rose again and ascended to heaven, showing us that whereas all of our efforts fall short, all of our measures fall short of expectations, Jesus alone can wash away sin. He alone can overcome death. He alone has risen from the grave. And His resurrection power is available to anybody that follows Him and turns away from religion and from the world and any other means of finding themselves. Because being one with God, being in a relationship with the Creator of the universe, that is what we long for. Being filled with the Spirit of life, liberty, love, hope, peace, joy, it is incomparable and actually makes that indescribable, inescapable, inconsolable longing, it meets that longing and says, checkmate, I'm your solution. Rather than taking us away from life, it sends us into life, into our relationships, into our world with a perspective that says it all matters to God. Even the bad days, even the tears and the sweat and the blood, it matters to God. It can be used for God. And that's why we can conclusively say there is no greater prize than knowing Him and no greater life apart from Him because He opens our eyes and our hearts to a greater capacity for life and joy. And dare I say, maybe we don't realize we have this greater capacity because we don't understand really who Jesus is and we haven't ever embraced Him for who He really is. Hear these verses once more. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and hid and for joy over it he goes and sells all that he has. The kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking beautiful pearls, who then, when he found one good pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Imagine walking in a field and stumbling upon a treasure that is more valuable than anything else you could ever work for or find in this life. It's more valuable than all you have now and will ever have in the future. You look around and notice that nobody realizes this treasure is here. 
So you cover it up quickly. You walk away pretending like you haven't seen anything, but you go into town and you begin to sell off your possessions to have enough money to buy that whole field to make sure that treasure is yours. The world thinks you're crazy. What are you thinking? Your family, your friends ask you, what are you thinking? But you tell them, I'm buying that field across the highway and down, the, down by the creek. I am buying that field because there's something in it that is better than anything else. They look at you and they say, that's ridiculous, that's foolish, that's, that's, that's a dumb thing to do. Why are you giving up everything you have that you've worked for that you could bring so much pleasure and peace and potential with? And you respond, I have a hunch. I've got a feeling. And you walk away. You smile because you know, you know that in the end, you aren't really giving anything away. You aren't really losing anything. You're gaining. Yes, you're abandoning everything that you have, but you are gaining more than you could ever have any other way. So with joy, with joy, you sell it all. You abandon it all. You stand it counter after counter. You do deal after deal. You shake hands hand after hand, and you part way with everything, your deed, your land, your possessions, your riches, all that you ever have worked for, you liquidate every last bit of it. You sold all that you have. What do you have? What is everything to you? Maybe you can't put a price on it. But what if you could? What if you could put a price tag on what is everything to you? What would cause you to do something so radical, so extreme, so reckless, so irrational, and so senseless? Because you know that the exchange you're making and the decision you're making is worth it. You know that Jesus alone is the answer to the incredible, inescapable, inconsolable longing in your heart. You trade in all that you have for a lump sum of money that even surprises you how much it actually is. You take that money, so much money, memories and meaningful things you hand it over, and without even processing it all, you take that money and you go to the real estate agent and you buy that field. This is a picture of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He is something, someone worth losing everything for. And if we walk away from Jesus, we walk away from eternal riches. The cost of not following Him is far greater than the cost that may come from following Him. But when we abandon the things of this world and respond to this radical invitation, we discover the infinite treasure of knowing Him. So I've got to ask you today, do we believe that Jesus is this treasure? Is that something we believe? Maybe as risen church, as the church? Do we know that he is the answer to the quest that we're on? Now, is that, I want you to ask that self. Is that something you believe? This makes us nervous because we wonder what it's going to ask us to do. Do we really believe He is worth abandoning everything for? Do we really believe that Jesus is so good, so satisfying, so rewarding that we will leave all we have and all we own and all we love and all we are in order to find our fullness in Him? 
Do you and I believe Him enough to obey Him and follow Him wherever He leads, even when culture and church turns the other way? Even when Christianity walks back His demands and apologizes for our human tendency and sentiment toward lesser things? Because it just feels right. In walking back Jesus' demands and invitation, we walk back from our reward and opportunity. When we water down what He asks from us and what He offers us, we water down what we can find and obtain in Him. And we've been stuck in this place of putting expectations and hopes on people that cannot measure up, pinning our dreams and on things and places that cannot sustain that weight. And definitely never will provide us salvation. And let me say this very clearly. The issue isn't that salvation is costing us something. Salvation does not cost us anything. It's free. Jesus paid it all. But the question is, are we free? Are we available? Or are we owned? He sold all that he had. You see, when Jesus finds us, he rescues us from his inferior competition. And we find Jesus, we are saved from lesser, weaker, as in they can't support us, things. So that we are willing to cash those other things out. And all the hope, all the faith, all the stock we put in them, we put on him. That's the point of this parable. That's why we cannot let anything stand between us and him because of what he offers us. We go to the extreme measures to see things, but what gain do we get? Jesus went to extreme measures to get us, so He is worth it. We must lose ourselves to find Him. Our generation is waiting for people to read these verses and say, Jesus is the treasure. He is the pearl of great value. I don't want anything to stand between me and Him. Will we be that generation that says, I'm willing like the Apostle Paul said in Philippians 3, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus. All this other stuff that I used to count on and depend on and live for, it's rubbish. Now let me be clear. Jesus and His kingdom are better than money, health, strength, even loved ones. But only in Him can we ever understand the true meaning of all the blessings He gives. We'll never understand why He's given us all the people and things we've got unless we realize... They're for Him and His purpose. Christ is supremely satisfying in such a way that if you lose everything on this earth, but you get the kingdom of heaven, you would have a happy trade-off. You've won. You've gained. Jesus made this promise in Matthew 19. Everyone who's left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands, for my name's sake, will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. Here's what he's saying. I and what I offer you is a hundred times, a thousand times, a million times, infinitely, infinite more than you could ever value anything of this world. Now, if Jesus showed up and offered us that, are, are we foolish to not take him up on that offer? I think so. He is the treasure, but until we treasure him and prize him above all else, we won't find him. We won't experience it. So are your eyes all on Him? 
Does your heart belong only to Him? Or is there an asterisk on your only? Is there an asterisk on your all? I believe when His gospel is given free reign, His Spirit moves. And when His Spirit moves, He moves people. I believe somebody is being invited to declare to the world that Jesus is the greatest treasure they could ever find. And today, maybe you want to take that step and say, I have decided to follow Jesus. There's no turning back. There's no greater treasure than knowing Him and being His. Because that longing in your heart is for a sense of belonging that only He can give you. So don't wait anymore. Christians, don't walk away from Jesus and start putting things on the shoulders of people, places, and things that cannot handle what you put on them. Only Jesus is the treasure. Only Jesus is the pearl. Only He can give you what your heart looks for the most. Let me pray for you. Father, I love you. Thank you so much for this opportunity to be in your house today. Thank you for this invitation. This invitation to follow you. Lord, these parables are so powerful. I couldn't imagine them being any longer than one verse because they're so convicting. But maybe they're so convicting because of what they offer us and the enemy doesn't want us to get it. He wants to put all this stuff in the way and the buts and the ifs and the I don't knows and the maybe nots and all the excuses. But God, somebody today is willing to say there's something in the way and there's something I need to get rid of. There's something I need to lay down. I know that salvation is free, but I haven't been free. I've been preoccupied. I've been owned by something less and something inferior, something weaker. And I realize there's nothing greater. There's no one greater than Jesus. I want to follow him today. Lord, move in this place. If there's a need, would you meet it? Would you meet with us as we give our hearts to you? In Jesus' name, amen. Stand with us as Lindsay's gonna sing for us. Follow you anywhere. The altar is open. Jesus is calling. Ask yourself, are you willing to take that step?